0: back to your seats. Well, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help. We as men are insufficient to help in all the ways that are needed in this room. And try as we might, our efforts will still be woefully lacking. And uh, therefore, Father, we need your spirit and your grace to be abundantly given to us. Not just for today, not just for these next few months, but for our entire lives. And Father, I fear this morning that I do not want to be like Job's friends who are unhelpful. During Job's trial, I feel inadequate to have the right words to say this morning, so I simply ask that you would speak to our church, and that you would help our church this morning through your word. Encourage us, hold us up, and sustain us. Help us trust in you, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we'll be in various places today, but if you want to turn to Philippians 2, you can. Most of the scriptures will be on the screen. When Jesus said, uh, in this world you will have tribulation in this world you have trouble. He wasn't lying. He wasn't wrong. I don't know if there's any of us who have gone through life and haven't profoundly known this to be true. Certainly some of us with heavier trials than others but all of us with various troubles. You have troubles with your children. Some of you have kids that are outside of the home and difficult situations. Others of you with children in your home with troubles. Our troubles involving our children are sometimes because of their sin, sometimes of them because they've been sinned against, and sometimes just the effects of living in a sin-cursed world. You have troubles with your job, your boss, and your organization. Some because your boss is mean, and he's a jerk. Some because you hate authority, and so your sin makes your trials worse. We have troubles with the government, unjust laws, the promotion of wickedness. We have troubles with conflict between family and friends that make things difficult or awkward. Troubles with communicating with your spouse. Understanding one another in a sin-cursed world is difficult. You have troubles with your body. It's breaking down, sickness plagues us, some with a cold for a couple days, others with cancer for years, and others with lifelong diseases that will never be fixed. We all have troubles of various kinds at various times, to varying degrees in each of our lives, and those put different amounts of pressure on our lives, but the principle remains that in this life you will have trouble. You know, our pastor and his son have been dealing with physical trouble for quite some time, and so this puts our church in a unique unique situation. Uh, If a quarterback gets injured for 10 weeks, the team suffers. If the CEO uh, must take leave for chemotherapy for a few months, the company has challenges that it must face. If a mother is sick in bed for a week with the flu, the family struggles. Certainly, if the senior pastor of a church needs medical leave to recover from an illness, uh, the church will be hurting in a sense. And there's no denying the fact that without Josh, we will suffer in some sense. And I don't think that's anything different than the Apostle Paul would tell you if he was here this morning. The Apostle Paul, when speaking about the church being a body made up of many members, so that's you, you are the members of this church body. Maybe you're a finger or you're a palm or you're an arm, etc., but You remember, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. When one of us suffers, we all suffer. So there's no denying that when a pastor of a church suffers, we all suffer alongside him and with his family. And so what are we to do, church? Are we to give up, pack it up, it's all over? God has abandoned Bloomington Bible Church because he has later Pastor Lowe? Of course not. When Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation, he says this with the context that he says, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And I will not spend this morning uh, being a salesman to you and tell you how everything is awesome and things are going to just keep moving around along perfectly smoothly and we won't skip a beat because you're not stupid and that's not true. My goal for this sermon is twofold. My goal is to show you one, pastors being sick is not a new thing in the church. And that should give us hope. Pastors being away from the flock due to trials is not something new to God's church. Two, God sovereignly works His purposes out in our lives and in this church even through trials, and tribulations. Now, there is no doubt that this is an incredible time to be alive and to be thankful for. Technology is advancing. Common grace is consistently and constantly being extended further and further to each man. Babies who would have died are now being born earlier and earlier. Babies can be born at 24 weeks, That would have never been the case years ago. We have medicines and medical procedures that people a hundred years ago could not fathom unless the Lord, and unless the Lord uh, comes before them, that will certainly be true for our great-grandchildren. They will look back at our time. They will have procedures that we could not fathom. I'm not arguing that everything in every way is better today than it was a hundred years ago. That's not the point. All I'm saying is that our ability to fight and help with diseases is far greater than it's ever been. I'm reading a book, it's called The Man That Moved a Mountain, and it's wonderful. It's a true story of a, a man named Bob Childress who lived from 1890 to, eight, excuse me, to 1956 in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And all the families in the Blue Ridge Mountains had big families. and It was not uncommon for a child to die from illness. Bob, speaking of many families that he grew up around, he says this, people in the hollow, that's where he lived, people in the hollow took babies as much for granted as the coming of spring. If one died, folks would say, it was meant to be. And when a thing is meant to be, it ain't no use to fret. But if a young man who died was getting some stretch to his leg, a man might think, even though he didn't say, a shame, getting big enough to work. That was a little more than a hundred years ago, a few states away. And thank God we don't lose children today in the same way even a hundred years ago. And thank God that losing a child feels much more substantial than it did around Bob Childress. My point is this, many of us have not been acquainted with illness like our ancestors have even 50 to 100, 200 years ago. Illness and being around illness can also seem foreign to us, but illness was close up and personal to most of the world in the past. And so when you hear your pastor being sick, it may seem novel to you or foreign to you. And while I understand that feeling, I want you to know that historically this is not nearly as abnormal as you would think. In Scripture, it's not as as abnormal for tribulation to come to pastors and ministers of the gospel the people of God. We know of Job's tribulation. Epaphroditus is being sent back to the Philippians in chapter 2 after almost dying. Look at verse 25 in Philippians 2 if you're there. It might be on the screen. I, I have thought it necessary, this is Paul saying this, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. It says, Epaphroditus nearly died for the work of Christ, and yet he recovered, and Paul was eagerly sending him back to the Philippians to encourage them and care for them, and and that is certainly our hope, that in the latter half of this year, we'll have a similar story with our pastor returning to us, but we will see what the Lord has. Paul himself, he's writing this letter in the Philippians from jail. He had a thorn in the flesh, and though we don't know exactly what it was, it was a trial that he dealt with long-term. You know, it's foreign for us to think about pastors being in jail, being away from the congregation. A pastor in jail means that the church is caring for his family, paying the bills. That seems very foreign to us, we're not used to that, but in the past for many, and still many around the world today, this is a reality that they face. Throughout the church's histories, pastors have been sick to varying degrees and varying lengths. Martin Luther, who wrote the 95 Theses, was often sick. Here's a quote about Luther and his illness. Luther, this is just fascinating, Luther had always suffered problems with his digestion. In 1527, he collapsed in the pulpit while preaching, the first of many dizzy spells that troubled and disoriented him thereafter. These attacks could also leave residue of ringing in the ears that persisted for months. Luther also began about this time to experience the first symptoms of, I forget how to say this word now, angina. angina. That's like a severe pain in your chest. It's when your, blood, when your heart's not getting enough blood. Um, and so you have pain kind of in your chest, in your arms, and your shoulders from insufficient blood flow to the heart. In December 1536, he would suffer a severe heart attack. From 1533, Luther also had to deal with the dreadful and debilitating pain of kidney stones. This was a common condition in the 16th century. The result was frequent, incapacitating pain, which only exasperated Luther's problems with his digestion. In 1537, while at an assembly, Luther suffered a urinary blockage so severe that his friends feared for his life. An operation was considered, but without anesthetic, the chances of survival were grim, and Luther was in any case case too weak for this to be contemplated. The crisis passed, but the recovery was slow. In 1538, his family was struck with dysentery. In 1541, he developed developed a painful abscess in the neck and suffered a perforated eardrum. Luther was at this point an old man, almost in constant pain, dosed by doctors, tended by an anxious wife. This is Martin Luther. Charles Spurgeon suffered intimately with depression and and illness for much of his life. He himself said, I have suffered many times from severe sickness and frightful mental depression, seeking almost to despair. Almost every year, he says, almost every year, I've been laid aside for a season, for the flesh and blood cannot bear the strain. At least such flesh and blood is mine. Spurgeon's wife was bedridden for decades. He himself was in great physical pain for large parts of his life. And when Spurgeon was young, he was preaching in a large hall and someone yelled fire when there was no fire and it caused a stampede, which resulted in many injuries and seven people died. Spurgeon said that incident took him, quote, near the burning furnace of insanity. He was so tormented by this, for much of his life, Spurgeon knew tribulation and sickness well, and John Calvin was so sick he couldn't walk a couple hundred yards to preach. You now these are giants of the faith, but in reality, there are there have been thousands upon thousands of pastors who have pastored small, humble congregations who have also been sick and faced tribulation, and you'll never know their names on the side of eternity. They lived simple lives, they didn't write books, they didn't preach in arenas, they didn't speak at conferences, but they shepherded their flock faithfully and they got sick for a time, some for a lifetime, some for a season. And so here we are with our pastor being ill. But it's not as uncommon as you might think. And that should give you hope, and you think, how is that supposed to give me hope that it's not uncommon? Well, since it's not uncommon, you should take comfort. God has been building His church in the midst of sickness throughout all of history. I was aiming to quickly show you that sickness has been around the church for a long time, and we live in a relatively healthy time, so sickness might surprise us a little more than it would have in the past. Yet significant sickness has always been present in the church, present among pastors. And you should realize that God has always been Raising up godly churches, godly families, godly households, in the very midst of sickness. He's not just done this in the midst of sickness, but he's used the very sickness as part of his schooling, as part of his training, to train his church to be more like Christ. And I'll talk more about that on a minute. But it should also give us hope because God isn't surprised or caught off guard by a pastor's illness. All of you have unique stories of how you ended up here at this church. Some of you have some incredible stories about how God orchestrated your life to bring you here and and how you've grown in wonderful ways. You've confessed sin that you were holding on to for years and you've been freed from. There's wonderful stories in our church of God's sovereign plan to help you, even in the midst of this church, bring you here, give you a pastor to care for you, give you brothers and sisters to care for you and help you and you've grown in wonderful, wonderful ways. And it's not as if God has this wonderful sovereign plan up until this point and then wham! It's over. It all fell apart. Never foresaw Josh getting ill. God has been faithful to you up to this point and he didn't mess up or get surprised by this. And he's not going to stop to care he's not going to stop caring for you now. It's not as if he's unable to care for you like he has in all the previous years. Certainly there will be weaknesses due to Josh being ill, but remember church, God is the one keeping you. God himself is the one sustaining you. I'm not telling you not to be sad about your pastor needing medical leave. Sadness is an appropriate response because you love him so much. But you also shouldn't fear that because Josh will be away for some time that your life is going to fall apart. Josh is not the one who has kept your marriage together all these years. Jesus has. He is not the one who saved you. Jesus is. He's not the one holding your life together. God is, and God will continue to do that. Yes, Josh has shepherded you you, and played significant parts and roles in your life and helped you for all of us. And we're all thankful for that. But he is the one in power holding you fast. And God in no way will stop doing that because he has allowed Josh to be ill during this season. Look at Philippians 2, 12 through 13. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What an appropriate verse for our time. For it is God, for it is God who works both to will and to work. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is the one sustaining us and this church. He is the one who works in us. And Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God has been building his church for centuries now. And illness has not and will not stand against it. Persecution hasn't been able to stand against it. And the very gates of hell will not be enough to stand between Christ and his love for the church. He promises to build, and he will continue to do so. I hope I've convinced you that sickness is not a new thing to affect the church. And that even during sickness, God still builds his church and cares for his people. But I want to expound... A little further on how God uses our trials, our tribulation, our persecution, our sickness, and the like, as the very instruments and avenues to care for his people. And this really should be its own sermon, but I'll give a shorter, quick overview right now. Many of you know the story of Joseph in the Bible. And if you're not familiar familiar with it, here's a quick overview. Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob. Jacob loved Joseph the most out of all his sons, okay? You can imagine how well that went over with his brothers. Joseph started having dreams, and he was telling his family about these dreams, about how one day he will be ruling over his brothers. And so you can imagine with his dad, him being his dad's favorite, and then telling dreams about how he's going to be in charge, how this younger brother is going to be in charge. Uh, The brothers are not keen on him. Because of their disdain for Joseph... Originally, they were planning to kill him, but instead, they decided to sell him into slavery to some merchants, who then sold Joseph to an Egyptian named Potiphar, who was a high-ranking man in Egypt. Joseph was very good at his job, and he became one of Potiphar's best servants, and whatever Joseph did, God was favorable to him, helped him succeed, but sadly, Joseph was falsely accused of raping Potiphar's wife after he turns down her advances, and so Potiphar has him put in jail for multiple years. And Joseph, he happened to be good at interpreting dreams. And so because he interpreted the dream of, a, of the cupbearer for Pharaoh, when Pharaoh had a dream years later that he couldn't understand, the cupbearer tells the Pharaoh about Joseph, about this man in jail. He, could, he can interpret dreams. And so Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream and tells him of a seven-year famine to come after seven years of bountiful harvest, And so Joseph, he's removed from jail, and he works up in the high ranks for the Pharaoh, and he helps Egypt kind of prepare for this famine that's coming. But when the famine does come, Jacob and Joseph's brothers, his family, it hits them hard, this famine. So Jacob sends his sons to come to Egypt to buy grain, and Joseph recognizes his brothers, but his brothers don't recognize him. And to make a longer story short, Joseph ends up revealing himself himself to his brothers and now you can imagine what the brothers are thinking is man going to kill us they feel terrible for their sin but Joseph quickly reassures them and he tells them God sent me here to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors so it was not you who sent me here but God and then later on in Genesis 50 Jacob says to them as for you you meant evil against me but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You know, almost none of this was fair for Joseph. There's this great story of tra- great trial. He's sold as a slave. He could have ended up anywhere. But God sovereignly directed him to work for Potiphar. But even then, he's falsely accused, so he's sent to jail not for a couple days, not for a week, for years. And even though, even there, Joseph was faithful still to God, and God used him in jail to sovereignly meet this cupbearer and interpret his dream, so that years later the cupbearer could tell Pharaoh about him so that they could stock up grain in order to save God's people. God planned to use Joseph to be sort of a savior to his people. But it came with years of trial. And Joseph didn't see what God was doing when he was sold as a slave. He didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't go to jail and have a clear picture of how in the world this was ever going to turn out good. And I don't know what God is doing here with us. I can't see the future, so I can't show you all the ways that God will use this for the good of his people. But I can tell you that in a similar way to Joseph's tribulation and trials being used by God for the good of God's people, this trial for our church will be used for the good of this church as well. And you might be skeptical and think, how, how can you know that? Well, God promises in Romans 8.28, one of the most famous passages in the Bible. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to this purpose. I don't know all the ways that this will be true, but I'm confident it will be true for us. This is how God has always worked. And, and James, that's why James can direct us and command us in the first chapter of his letter. Count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and the steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing it doesn't mean suffering isn't hard it is hard but god uses it for his glory for the blessing of his people far beyond just the person who has the trial far beyond just us when we're going through a trial God has purposes beyond that. Josh's trial will be used for our endurance and steadfastness too. I'm always amazed by the story of the blind man in John 9. John 9 says, And he passed by and he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but the works of God, But that the works of God might be displayed in him. Think about that. This man has been blind his entire life. The disciples thought, well, it's either his sin or it's his parents' sin. Don't know which, but gotta be one of them. But no, he was blind from birth for the very point that the works of God might be displayed in him. He had to deal with being blind for years for the very purpose of God being glorified. And there is no doubt that God has later passed pastor low, but not for no reason. But so the works of God might be displayed, not just in Joshua's life, but in our church's life, and our lives too. And so, church, you know, you should know, Josh is suffering, our church is suffering, your suffering is not wasted. It's not pointless. God has a plan for it. He had a plan with Joseph. He had a plan with the blind man. He had a plan with Jesus, with Paul, with Paphroditus, with Martin Luther, with Spurgeon, with Calvin, with all the other small pastors that we'll never know about. And he has a plan for Josh and for us. This is the God, this is the God that we serve. So let me give you a quick, some pastoral exhortations of what to do during this season. Number one, pray. I hope this causes you to pray and causes our church to pray more than we ever have. Aim to pray daily for your pastor. Number two, care for one another. More than ever, the pastors and the elders need your help to care for one another. 1 Peter one twenty two says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. There's no doubt that one of the ways that God will use this for good in our church is that he will grow our ability to care for one another. So have people in your homes. Maybe you've let hospitality fall to the wayside. Now is a great time to start that up again. If you see somebody struggling, take the initiative to help them. Don't wait for a pastor or your small group leader or an elder to do something about it. You go, you help them, you encourage them, exhort them, comfort them, whatever they're needing. And some of you are sitting here and I know how your minds work and you're wondering, well, what can I do for Josh? What thing can I do for Josh? How, how can I help him? What's, what steps could I take? What do they need? And that's very admirable of you to think that way. So thank you for caring and thank you for thinking about that. There will be things to do, and we'll help you know those things. But honestly, one of the greatest things you could do for your pastor is to put into practice what he's taught you over these last 12 years. If you love one another, that alone would bring strength and joy to your pastor far more than any gift card could ever bring you have kids there's not much greater joy than seeing your children put this into practice what you what you've taught them over the years especially when they're loving their siblings it's why Jesus says if you love me keep my commandments and in a similar way nothing gladdens the heart of a pastor the spirit of a pastor to see his flock loving each other and putting into practice what he's taught you and three finally encourage your pastor when you see him be ready to tell Josh something Encouraging when he's around. A way that you put into practice something he's taught that's borne fruit. Encourage him, but again, love one another. Loving one another will likely be the best way you can encourage him while he's gone. Church, this will not be simple or easy, but you can be confident that God is at work in our midst. He is taking care of us, and he will work all things out for the good of his church. So let's stand for prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for caring for us. Thank you that we are not lost in your eyes, that you are not too busy with all the world's problems that you have forgotten about us, but that you intimately care and pay attention to us and our needs. And we have many needs, and we ask that you would care for us during this time. Help us love one another. Help us sacrifice for one another. Help us put into practice what we've been taught over these years. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.